It's the 21st of June, 2019. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, biologics and the risk of infection. Also, what happens when you discontinue methotrexate? And we'll wrap up with a wrap-up of late-breaking abstracts from ULAR 2018. We have a few studies that looked at infectious risk with biologics this week. One was the FORWARD study. That's from the National Data Bank run by Caleb Mishad. Uh, a really interesting look at things that happen when you're on biologics. Specifically, they compared patients that were on abatacept to other biologics to disease-modifying drugs, conventional disease-modifying drugs, specifically looking at the risk of malignancies and infections. And it turns out that between the various biologics, there was no differential cancer risk and of course, many of you are concerned about cancer, um, concerned about the risk of cancer, especially with TNF inhibitors. But you know, you gotta get up to date on this because there really is no risk. Uh, and if that's stopping you from doing something as far as treatment, you need to know the data. If you have a solid tumor, doesn't matter what drug you wanna use, biologics are okay. That's ACR guidelines. TNF inhibitors, yes, they have been associated with um, uh, uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but so has rheumatoid arthritis. It's not a higher risk. The bottom line is you treat the arthritis, someone else should treat the cancer. But in these studies, they looked at, again, uh, cancer risk, and they found no difference uh, amongst the many drugs that they looked at. What they did find as far as infectious risk was that there was a lower risk of hospitalized infections with abatacept. Again, that's sort of a repeated story that we seem to see that when it, uh, it comes to the risk of serious infections, hospitalizable infections, it looks like abatacept um, sort of leads the way in being maybe the safest. Now, is that really because the drug is safer or is it because it gets used last? Meaning the more severe patients, the ones who might be at greater risk, get you know infliximab and other TNF inhibitors and, uh, and maybe abatacept gets used later in the mix. Uh, either which way, the profile looks good for abatacept uh, and all the other ones look about the same. The second study that actually looked at infectious risk was, um, uh, where is this? Uh, I have it right here somewhere. Uh, it's, it's eluding me right now, but the, so I'll go on to my next news item. Methotrexate and lymphoproliferative disorders. I don't know if you've ever seen this. You know, the folklore is that patients on methotrexate can develop lymphoma, um, and it looks like a lymphoma, smells like a lymphoma, but if you stop the methotrexate, the lymphoma goes away. I've been waiting to see one of these. I've been doing this since 1984, haven't seen and been prescribing methotrexate a lot, and I haven't seen it yet. But this particular study looked at a large number of these events, um, I think it was over 200, and examined the clinical and pathologic associations seen with methotrexate-associated lymphoproliferative disorders, and again, yes, it's rare, but what they did see was that when you, was, when you stopped the methotrexate, the lymphoproliferative disorder actually abated, went into remission somewhere between three and 10 months. The most common of these, and there was all kinds of lymphomas, was diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Turns out that between half and three quarters of them were Epstein-Barr positive, suggesting that Epstein-Barr may be one of the culprits underlying this. So, uh, it's an interesting report. If you have such a patient, you might want to look at this and see how it compares uh, to your experience. Uh, another, a few reports from ULAR that I thought were interesting. One is um, 
Emapalumab, Emapalumab. Uh, it's a monoclonal antibody that's actually approved for use in uh, HLH, um, the, uh, the macrophage activation syndrome equivalent. Um, the antibody is against gamma interferon. So at uh, ULAR, they had a presentation where they showed that yes, it should work. They showed that it, uh, it was effective in six patients with uh, macrophage activation syndrome associated with systemic JIA. Uh, and it works by rapidly neutralizing gamma interferon, normalizing CXCL9, uh, and decreasing markers of T-cell activation. So you know, MAS should be treated how? Cyclosporin or etoposide, depending on whether you're a rheumatologist, nephrologist, or whether you're a hematologist using etoposide. But this might be another way of using, uh, uh, effectively treating patients, especially when they um, are not doing well. As you know, systemic JIA is one of the most common causes of MAS. Uh, and the markers there are patients who have very high LFTs, very high ferritin levels. Um, you should be worrying about MAS uh, in patients with Stills disease. Um, a survey, I found this very interesting. It was from one of the um, sort of patient seminars called PARE, P-A-R-E, at uh, ULAR. Uh, and this one, they talked about pain. And the, this particular study uh, comes from the Danes, a 900 patient rheumatic disease patient study showing that amongst those who, who had pain, one in 10 admitted to considering suicide in the last four weeks. I mean, that's a bit shocking for those of us who treat patients with rheumatic disease. We wouldn't think our patients would wanna kill themselves over pain, but it, it does underscore one, that pain is what drives many decisions and many behaviors. Two, that maybe we as physicians don't pay enough attention to pain. Uh, and that gets particularly harder as we are uh, in this era of the opioid crisis and you know us diverting strong pain medicines to pain management and them not wanting to fill the prescription and the patient being left in the lurch uh, and being felt, um, uh, feeling guilty we're actually even asking for relief of pain. One of the interesting things about this particular study showed that a lot of the people who had pain um, uh, related it to poor quality of sleep. Uh, and I think most rheumatologists don't pay enough attention to sleep, don't treat sleep, um, are afraid to treat sleep, and afraid to even ask questions about sleep. You really should. Everybody in my clinic visits gets asked the following questions. How is your sleep? Is it very good, good, fair, poor, or very poor? How long does it take you to fall asleep? How many minutes, how many hours? How many times do you wake up and why? If you do wake up, can you go back to sleep right away? What do you take, what do you not take? How do you feel when you wake up in the morning? That's very revealing uh, and could help you manage not just fibromyalgia, but a lot of pain. Uh, an interesting study looked at the risk of infection with arthroplasty. That's the other story I was looking for. This came out in the uh, Annals of Internal Medicine just this week. Uh, and compared the use of multiple biologics, basically all the ones that are on the market, um, and really showed that there really was no difference when it came to uh, the risk of either a perioperative or post-operative infection within the first three months following the surgical procedure, hip or knee replacement. It also looked at the risk of uh, prosthetic joint infections looking out as far as a year. Turns out that it really didn't matter um, which biologic you used. Uh, the only thing that did matter is whether or not they were on steroids. Steroids showed to were shown to have an increased risk of both those infections 
uh, and it was in a dose-dependent manner, and especially amongst people who were taking 10 milligrams or more of prednisone or its equivalent. So are all biologics equal when it comes to uh, post-operative infections with hip replacement? Well, that forward study that we first talked about said it was maybe giving an edge to uh, abatacept. This study says, no, they're all about the same and they're not, the, they sort of overlap when, with their confidence intervals. And I think that's because if these drugs are used effectively, they neutralize inflammation. Inflammation is the main driver of infectious risk, especially perioperative and postoperative infections. So controlling the disease is the most important step in averting effect infection. And that's why I think they all look the same. Uh, there was an interesting report from ULAR, I think on the very first or second day, that I had great hope for. And this is a abstract, uh, what was it? Um, I don't know it, uh, it's, in the, it's in the citations that we provide for you. But it was an oral presentation that looked at the, the control of blood pressure in individuals with hyperuricemia, um, especially when they were treated with allopurinol. So the protocol was to take adolescents, not adolescents, young adults, and divide them up into those who have um, a, a, a low, um, like less than six and high uric acid level, and they were either treated with um, allopurinol or placebo. It turns out that allopurinol did, um, did lower uric acid levels, um, and it did improve uh, endothelial function as measured by flow-mediated dilation. But it, what it didn't do was it didn't control blood pressure. These, these individuals had um, um, mild to moderate blood pressure changes. They were not on antihypertensives and using allopurinol did not seem to change that. Now that flies in the face of uh, a well-known study, often quoted study, but a small study. And this is a small study too. I think this was, I wanna say 40 or 80 patients. I think it was 80 patients. Um, but a small study of 18 or 19 patients from UT Southwestern where they took obese adolescents um, who had hyperuricemia and gave them allopurinol or placebo, and the allopurinol group uh, lowered the uric acid levels but normalized blood pressure. And again, that wasn't really seen in this current study. What was seen, and the individuals had the greatest drops in their uric acid, they did notice um, a, a lowering of blood pressure, but it wasn't significant for the whole cohort. So the question is, you know, is uh, uric acid toxic to the kidney? It's certainly toxic to everything else. Uh, will it drive hypertension? Uh, is it something that you can achieve by uh, controlling uric acid? Can you achieve improved renal function? Past studies say yes. Can you, imp can you achieve better blood pressure control? The supposition is yes. This particular trial didn't show it. One of the late-breaking abstracts that was presented on the final day last uh, Saturday by Dr. Stan Cohen was what was called the, um, the uh, oral shift study. Uh, and the idea here was to take patients who were started on methotrexate and tofacitinib, um, watch them go into low disease activity state, and then randomize them to either continue the combination or withdraw the methotrexate. The study was interesting in that it showed you could safely withdraw methotrexate and patients would do exactly the same. They were able to maintain their low disease activity state uh, and do very well. So that answers a question for those of you who are using the combination. Can you safely withdraw methotrexate? And they did. Um, and, and again, they, they did so rapidly and without really any, any consequence. The numbers of flares were very, very low. This doesn't answer the question about what you do when you're starting 
uh, tofacitinib? Do you start methotrexate or do you go in monotherapy? I think you should start both drugs. And I think that this uh, sh uh, oral shift study tells you that you need to then consider withdrawal of methotrexate or maybe withdrawal of Zelchance uh, as time goes on. Those seem prudent. Finally, um, late-breaking abstracts, um, spirit head-to-head -head study. This is late-breaking abstract 005 presented by Philip Meese. This is adalimumab versus ixekizumab in patients with psoriatic arthritis. The primary endpoint here was an aggressive one. It was an ACR50 plus a POSI 100, total clearing of skin psoriasis. Uh, and it was clearly aggressive and it did favor in the end after 16 and 24 weeks, ixekizumab looked better than adalimumab. Um, but this was largely driven by the skin responses. The skin responses were the POSI 100 was achieved in 60% on ixekizumab, only 47% on adalimumab whereas the ACR50 responses were roughly the same, 51% for ixekizumab and 47% for adalimumab or vice versa, it didn't matter, they were both the same. Adalimumab 51%, ixekizumab 47%. So again, the safety profiles were, were uh, kind of about the same, but unique to what drug we're, and what mechanism we're looking at here. Look at my report, you'll see more. But this is a sort of aggressive study, uh, and I think it, it tells you a lot about um, where maybe IL-17 inhibition may fit in PSA. Uh, the early AMPLE study. This is AMPLE, as you remember, was an abatacept versus adalimumab trial showing that they both worked really well and that abatacept worked just as fast as adalimumab. In this study, this is a small uh, study of 80 patients looking at something very specific. Um, and they looked at early RA patients and um, they had to get, to get into the study, you had to be double positive for rheumatoid factor and have a very elevated uh, ACPA antibody. So what they saw was that uh, abatacib looked like it was gonna be superior to adalimumab uh, in, at, the, at the end point of 24 weeks, but if you looked at the, um, the shared epitope positive patients, now ACPA positive patients, you know, 60 to 75% of patients will have the shared epitope, either heterozygous or homozygous, the shared epitope positive patients here had significantly greater ACR 20, 50, and 70 responses compared to adalimumab, again suggesting that that might be involved in how this drug may work. And lastly, Mark Genovese, and that was uh, abstract LB008. My last one is LB009, Mark Genovese presenting the data on vagal nerve stimulation and rheumatoid arthritis, a 14-patient pilot trial, three patients getting um, sort of uh, a run-in and 11 patients then randomized to receive one of four different regimens, either uh, vagal stimulation once a day or vagal stimulation once uh, uh, four times a day or sham vagal stimulation. Uh, what they showed that once a day was significantly better, that vagal stimulation was associated with significant reduction in uh, IL-1, IL-6, IL-17, TNF, IL-23. Uh, this is how it's supposed to work, that uh, vagal stimulation is supposed to give you a cholinergic signal that's meant to turn off TNF and other pro-inflammatory cytokines for uh, 24 to 48 hours. Uh, the QID stimulation didn't work very well, uh, and so this looks like an exciting new way of approaching um, cytokine manipulation in rheumatoid arthritis patients. It was, not, it was not totally safe. There were two patients who had, I think, serious consequences, serious outcomes. One was a vocal, a vocal cord paralysis, the other one a Horner syndrome, obviously damage to the uh, vagal nerve by the, uh, the implant. 
I think with time and expertise and, and figuring out how to implant this very little, you know, big capsule size thing um, to the left of the carotid, um, the, 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 I think safety should get better. But I think you'll see a randomized controlled trial on this in the future. That's it for this week on the Room Now podcast. Go to the website to see these citations and read more about these exciting advances in rheumatology. We'll talk to you next week here on Room Now.